Thanks, Farmer Aaron. Uh, <laughs> we'll go ahead and dismiss for Antioch kids uh, and your uh, teachers to your classrooms. Uh, we recognize the, the sacrifice that our teachers make every week, and we appreciate you. And so we say this as a, as a church in recognition of the mission that you're on, you are sent. So, church, good morning. My name is Tanner. I'm a pastor candidate here at Antioch. And we're currently going through our series uh, where we're looking at our identity as worshipers. So if that's new language for you, here's what we mean. There are five identities that we see in the New Testament that represent Christians and Christian communities that we, as Antioch Church, are striving to live out and embody as we worship God and serve our communities and love one another. So those identities, put them on the screen, just a snapshot, right? Those identities are eyewitnesses, disciples, family, worshipers, and blessing. And so obviously we're going through a worship series, and we really feel like worshipers is our central identity. That if we are not worshipers of the one true God, as those who've been redeemed by him through the death of Christ and called to live in community through the Holy Spirit, if we're not seeking the Lord in worship, then we're just really spinning our wheels. None of our other identities are actually connected to anything. Uh, Whatever good we do, we do it in vain. And so giving God the first fruits of our lives in worship must take priority, which is why we're spending the first six weeks of the year reflecting on what it means for us to be worshipers and how our identity as worshipers connects to these other four identities. So you'll hear, you'll, Marcus helped kind of start us out. God is the one worthy of worship. And then the, the other pastors will work through the other identities and connect. How do those identities connect with what it means to be a worshiper of God? And so this week we'll, we'll look at being disciples and worshipers. The title of our series we're calling Quorum Deo, which is a Latin term that means before the face of or in the presence of God. For the Christian, for everyone, we live all of life in the presence of God. For the Christian, we recognize that that is a call to live in a spirit of worship before his presence. You go to work, you're a parent, you cook dinner, you spend time with friends, all of that is in the presence of God, and we're all called to, to do all of those things with a spirit of worship. So today we're going to look at the connection, like I said, between worship and disciples. So if you have your Bibles, we've already read it, um, but open them to Psalm 115. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, that's on page 510. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Essential Task of Discipleship. The Essential Task of Discipleship. So we're answering the question, what is, what is the essential task of discipleship? And that's the main point this morning. Uh, worship is the essential task of discipleship. And we'll work, work through what, what that means. Worship is the essential task of discipleship. And there are four things in the psalm that I think we need to pay attention to that helps us make that connection. So first is seeking God's glory above our own. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. Second, keeping our hearts from idols. We'll see that in verses 4 through 8. 
Third, we're going to encourage one another in faith, verses 9 through 13. And fourth, reminding one another of his faithfulness, verses 14 through 18. So since we've, we've already sung the psalm together, which is glorious, we got, you get two sermons today, right? Uh, you get the psalm singing and then this one. Uh, We won't stand and read it, but we do want to posture our hearts in a way where we can say, Church, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. So discipleship is always a touchy subject. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, but it's a little tricky. Uh, We feel maybe a little uncomfortable or it's difficult. We know that it's part of the Great Commission. Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended To the right hand of the Father, he says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. But frankly, if we're we're being honest, most of the conversations, at least that I've had about discipleship, deal with questions related to, okay, I think I know what that means, but what does it really mean? Like, what what does make disciples really mean? What does being a disciple really mean? No one's ever really taught me how to disciple. Have you said that? Right? I've never been discipled. You said that. I've said that. And so what do we do? We just don't do it. Or we don't think deeply about it or ignore it. Or we feel guilty about it. I know I've said all those things and I've felt all those things. We make discipleship too complicated. We overbuild it. We overprogram it. And we miss the point. And that point, which is what I want to make this morning, is that worship is the essential task of discipleship. If we do anything else and we don't worship, we're not really doing discipleship. I like this definition from Pastor Mark Dever. He says, discipleship is doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Or to put it simply, discipleship is helping one another follow Jesus. And I think he's right. I think that's straight and to the point. And I want to make the point clearer this morning that we do that, help others follow Jesus, become more like Christ, when we practice worshiping with one another in a way that helps each other become more like Christ. So as we work through the psalm together, I want you to think about a previous discipleship experience, maybe one you're currently in, maybe as I've been talking, someone, the Lord's put someone on your mind, And I want you to think, as we go through the psalm and go through these four points, how can I apply this to my discipleship experiences? How can I apply this to the way that I approach discipleship? I'm suspecting it's probably completely different than what you have in mind. And so I want to try to maybe undo some of that and show you, show us that the primary task is that we're worshiping with one another. Ready? Okay. So, point one. Worshipful discipleship consists of seeking God's glory above our own. So, a couple things about the psalm. You need to know these things. So, first, this is a community hymn. It was written to be sung by the people of God in worship, in community worship. We did that this morning. Check, right? We, we did what it was written for. Second, the psalm is meant to take place around a meal. So the nation of Israel would would have the Passover meal, and they would begin the meal by singing Psalms 113 and 114, 
And at the conclusion of the meal, they would start singing Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 18. And so we read this psalm with the idea of the Passover and God's redemption of Israel and God's future promise of redeeming his people in mind as we go through the text. We have to keep, we keep those in mind. We read it in context of what it, what it was written for. And third, this is a psalm for disciples. If this was sung at Passover, and we know from the Gospels that after the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn, and we know from the Gospels that, we, uh, that it's likely they sang Psalm 118, then we could say, perhaps, that Psalm 115 is sort of thrown in with this singing after the Lord's Supper. It's a psalm for disciples. And so it begins in verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We need to pause here and point out that this is both the best place for worship to begin and it's the most difficult. It's the best place because worship, that is the definition of worship. God's glory, not mine. God's praise, not mine. God's honor, not mine. Not to us. But it's difficult because this is just a hard thing to do. It's hard to not seek your own glory. It's easy to do it. It's easy to not seek your own glory when things are going well, when you're prospering. You say, well, you know, when you win the Super Bowl, what do they say, right? To God be the glory. What about when you lose every game that season? What are you saying? When you're, when you're prospering, you're on top. And everyone already assumes you're glorious. But when you're suffering, when your back's against the wall, when you've been kicked down, when you're fighting for your life, is your first instinct like, not to me. God gets the glory. You know, I know she's sick, and the doctors say they can't do anything else about it. But God get the glory. Is that your instinct? I know they're bullying me at work. They're saying things behind my back. They're slandering my name. But forget about my name. Make God's name great. Like, is that, is that what you do first? No. Maybe on our best days. But that's not generally how we respond. How do we respond? Vindicate me. Make my name great. Make me known. Help me get the glory. But worship begins by seeking God's glory above our own. And for this reason, verse 1 is a very difficult prayer to pray. And notice the appeal, verse 1. The psalmist is is appealing for the sake of God's own steadfast love and faithfulness. Nothing of their own doing. Not to our works, not to how famous we are, not to that we can get out of this mess, but according to your name, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, do it because of you and who you are, God. In other words, we're out of options. We have nowhere else to turn. In verse 2, gives an indication of kind of where they're at in their suffering as, as a nation. They say, why should the nation say, where is their God? Another way of saying is, how can the nation say, 
where is their God? There's three reasons why maybe the nations might say, where is their God? First, in the context of this psalm, it's Israel's suffering and they're being taunted. Where's your God now? I thought he was going to redeem you. I thought he was going to save you. Looks like you're still suffering. So where is he? He must be hiding or asleep. Second reason why the nations might say this is that it demonstrates the contrast between Israel's God and their gods. The gods of the nations are represented in idols made of carved wood and precious metals, and they're decorated and revered, and they have temples, and you can go and visit the gods of the nations. But Israel's God refuses, uh, prohibits the making of idols. He's not confined to locations. But, as Paul says in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, idols, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives all, to all mankind life and breath and everything. Israel's God's not confined to temples. He's not confined to uh, the worship of idols. He... he restricts those things. Instead, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He rules above his creation. The nation's gods are handmade fabrications. They're false. They can't do anything. And lastly, the nations might say, where is their God in response to a lack of distinction? Where is their God? They don't seem very hopeful. Their lives aren't much different than ours. Ethically, they make the same decisions. Their God must be like ours. So where is he? Regardless of why the nations might make this taunt, here's how a worshipful heart responds. Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We seek God's glory above our own. That's the first point. Sin is the idolatrous act of seeking undeserved praise and glory, either for ourselves or some other created thing. True Christian worship is the act of giving to God all the praise and glory that he deserves. So let me ask the question, what would the culture of our church look like if we were committed to helping one another cultivate this kind of response? Like, we're done trying to be like the nations. They have no hope. We're done trying to figure it all out on our own. We refuse to justify ourselves before others who hate us and hate our God. They ask, where is our God? Our response, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases according to his name. I can't produce something to show him to you. We trust him. He's faithful. We love him. He loves us. He's not seen in the works of human ingenuity. He is in the heavens. The universe is under His control. And because of that, we seek His glory and not our own. Discipleship has to begin here. And from there, we can move on to a second observation that discipleship consists in helping one another avoid idolatry or keeping our hearts from idols. So God is not seen in the works of human hands. 
but the nation makes idols of their gods, their false gods. Here's how the psalmist describes them. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not even make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. But idols don't necessarily have to be like hand-carved images. We you're not like this, right? They don't, idols don't look like that in today's American culture, at least. We're not making those statues and worshiping them and bowing down. Rather, idols are in the heart. They're the things our hearts cling to. As Martin Luther says, ask and examine your heart diligently and find whether it cleaves to God alone or not. If you have a heart that can expect of God nothing but what is good, especially in lack and distress, and that moreover renounces and forsakes everything that is not God, then you have the only true God. If, on the contrary, your heart cleaves to anything else of which it expects more good and help than of God and does not take refuge in him, but in adversity flees from God, then you have an idol, another God. So anything that your heart cleaves to for refuge above God is an idol, a false God. So look back at verses 4 through 8. How are idols described? Even idols of the heart. They're dead. Lifeless. Useless. Right. Have eyes but see not. They have mouths but can't speak. Not even a sound in their throat. Not even like a gurgle. They might look impressive, but they have no power. And the same is true for idols that you and I slap together in our hearts. The idol of status. I'll take refuge in people knowing who I am for the brand that I build for myself. The idol of performance. I'll put my trust in my ability to get the job done. I'll trust the work of my hands. The idol of comfort. I will run away from everything that makes me uncomfortable. I'll surround myself with people who affirm me and never critique me. I'll reject anything that doesn't make me feel good. Or the idol of self-righteousness. I'll trust in my Bible reading or my prayer life or uh, my moral decisions. I'll say, thank God I'm not like those people. They're idols. They're false gods. Our status comes from God alone. Our righteousness depends on the performance of Christ alone. Our comfort is a gift promised to us through the Holy Spirit alone who is the comforter. We've all bent our knees to false gods. In my own heart, I've said all of those things. But they're idols. They're dead. They can't save you. Verse 8 brings it home even more. Those who make them, whether with wood, stone, gold, or silver, or in the heart, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust them. It's a principle of worship that's taught throughout the Bible. We become like the things we worship. We become like the things we worship. 
If you want to worship material things and find comfort in them, you will become materialistic. You'll be ruled by possessions. That is all you will have in this life. If you want to worship the inner circle and fit in with the crowd so that people like you, you will lose yourself. You will only become a fuzzy reflection of someone else. If you want to worship the image you see in the mirror, you will become a representation of your own pride and you'll be ruled by the self who's a ruthless master. Here's where I want us to make the connection with discipleship. One, we recognize this and we call each other away from idolatry. Like, hey man, I've noticed you've been not home at night, you've been working long hours, you're slaying, like you're just going to town trying to get that raise. You're stressed. You're trying to perform for people. But I want to tell you, like Jesus loves you. Who you are, it doesn't matter what, how hard you're working. Jesus loves you. Your family needs you. And the false God of financial comfort or professional status is not worth dying for. And you need to know that. Like that's discipleship 101. We have those conversations with people. We call each other away from that. Like you're worshiping false gods, you're worshiping the self, you're worshiping comfort, you're worshiping something other than God, you're seeking refuge in what you can do. Turn away from that. But also, because we become like the things we worship, if, we, if worship is the essential task of discipleship, then discipleship that helps others become more like Christ is the natural fruit of worship. You see that? In discipleship, we help one another worship Jesus, the essential task. We become like the things we worship. So in helping one another worship Jesus through discipleship, we're helping one another become like Jesus through discipleship. Paul makes this connection in Ephesians 4, where he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. The new self that is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We become like the things we worship. As a disciple of Jesus, we put away idols of the old self. And in Christ, we put on the new self created after his likeness. And that's discipleship. That we keep our hearts away from idols and call one another to the worship of God alone. I need to make a, maybe pause a little bit and say, like, if you're like me, this might be frustrating. Because what I'm basically saying is, like, there's no, there's no three steps I want you to do. There's no books to read. I'm practically driven. I'm, I'm a very practical person. So this sort of stuff, like, frustrates me, right? But we're not concerned with the right method. We don't want to overbuild the thing. We're concerned with knowledge and truth, right? We want to say that. But primarily that knowledge be expressed through the proper response, which is worship. St. Augustine essentially says that any knowledge of God that doesn't lead to proper worship of God and love for your neighbor is knowledge that is not yet truly known. You don't know it yet. If you know something and you don't love God more or love your neighbor more, you haven't really come to know it yet. And discipleship is not about how much you know or what boxes you check, but it's about who you are in Christ. It's about your identity, as Paul writes. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How else do we respond to that other than worship? It should be encouraging. Our, our relationships with one another ought to be constantly calling those things out and reminding each other of who we are in Christ. It's encouraging. So th- our third point, it's we, discipleship encourages one another in the faith. The psalmist goes on to address three distinct groups. So rather than putting your trust in idols like the nations, psalmist writes, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless, bless the house of Israel. Bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. There's a lot we could say there, but here's the point. That God can be trusted. No one is too small or far off. The Lord will bless all who fear him. His covenant people, Israel, the ones in his service, like the house of Aaron, or any who fear the Lord. No one is too small for his blessings. All can trust him. He is their help and their shield. So let me ask again, what would discipleship at Antioch look like if we did this? If we were committed to regularly meeting with one another to encourage each other in this kind of faith. We all have poor memories. We're subject to forgetting God's goodness. This past Friday, I was literally in the middle of writing this next paragraph I'm going to go through. And I feel like I'm drowning. And it's literally raining on my head. And I just felt deflated. We, we have a forgetful memory. We can be writing, trust in the Lord. He can be trusted and yet despair at the same time. Discouragement is always willing to take every opportunity it can get. And at least I'm not this way. Maybe you are, but I can't hype myself up enough to get over it. And so the point is this, that we need one another. We need to constantly encourage one another. We can't do this alone. As the author of Hebrews writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He can be trusted. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If discipleship is helping one another follow Jesus, then my job, your job, in discipleship is not to have all the answers. It's not to be spiritual gurus. But it's to point others to Christ. You can trust Him. He's faithful. He loves you. Which brings us to our final point. Discipleship involves reminding one another of His faithfulness. Verse 14. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's a language of blessings, reminder of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So verse 16, we get the repeated reminder, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't need anything from you. 
The heavens are his. He made the earth. Not so that you could worship other idols. So you could make things. He doesn't need them. He gave you the earth for you. To bless you. So that you could give glory to him. The heavens are his. But the earth he's given to the children of man. He's not impressed by human credentials. He doesn't need the things of the earth. The God who's in the heavens has given the nations the very elements they use to make false idols. The things of the earth belong to the children of man so they would worship the one true God. The nations make idols of the earth and it kills them. Verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord. Those who make those who make false gods do not praise the Lord. Nor do any who go down into silence, those who actually die. But only those who are alive can praise the Lord. Only those who have not sought their own glory can bless his name. Verse 18, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So as we come to a close, let me make a few comments that hopefully make this connection more clear. If you want practical, here's, here's the example that I just kept coming to this week. If you want a practical example of how worship and discipleship take place in the life of the church. You and one to three other people meet on a regular basis with the primary goal of worshiping God and giving him glory through the relationships you enjoy with one another. I guess, in a nutshell, discipleship. No series of steps or books to work through. Those things are fine. You're welcome to do them. I've given most of my adult life to Christian education. Like I believe in books and thinking and all of those things. But it's easy to just read books. It's easy to just follow a program. I actually think this is much more difficult. So here's the, here's the example. <clears throat> Someone asks you, tell me about your discipleship group. And you say, well, me and two friends meet on a weekly basis. We seek God's glory through times of suffering and confusion. We, we read the paper, and we don't know what's going on in the world, and we just seek that the Lord will glorify his name. And we pray for whatever's going on in our life. Pray for our families and our coworkers. And we share stuff that's going on at work, and we, we seek God's glory. We call each other away from false worship. We, we call each other out when we're, when we're putting our jobs before our families. We call each other out when we're, uh, when we're not trusting in God, but we're trying to seek solace in something else or another false idol. We call each other back to true worship of God as we spend our weeks together. We encourage one another in the faith. So we might, we might read the Bible together or we might get a Christian book and, and open it, but we're really not concerned with finishing the book. We're helping one another follow Jesus. We're helping each other grow into the image of Christ as we worship him together. That's the task we're committed to. When we're discouraged, we remind one another of God's faithfulness. We remind one another of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would our church culture look like if we were all committed to doing something like that? Friends, the God who made heaven and earth rules in power over his creation. To him alone, as Jude writes, belongs all glory 
majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. But we, you and I, and all who came before us, have rejected him and chosen instead to worship false gods, either handmade or of the heart. And if you're here this morning and you're not a worshiper of Jesus, you're still dead in your sin. You're still worshiping dead things, and you become like the things you worship. You're still worshiping created things over the God who made you. But God, in his faithful love for you, you and your idolatrous heart, took on flesh with eyes that saw, ears that heard, a mouth that spoke, feet and hands that moved and walked, became the image of the invisible God. And Jesus died in your place, wrongfully accused of what? Of false worship. Of blasphemy. So that through his death, you, a true false worshiper, might live. Paul writes, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And three days later, Jesus rose because it was impossible for death to hold him and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And it pleases Him to give life to all who call upon His name and worship. And after He rose from the dead, He spoke to His disciples and said, come back to Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. God's glory above our own. He has the authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, turning their hearts from idols and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A new identity, a new and better object of worship. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, encouraging one another in faith and obedience. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, an eternal reminder of God's faithfulness. Worship is the essential task of discipleship. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave another reminder of his faithfulness. A reminder that his sacrifice, the new covenant, is going to sustain the church until the day of his return. And he took a loaf of bread with his friends, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, passed it to his friends and said, take and drink. This cup represents the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Church, this is how he's sustaining us. Today at Antioch, we're proclaiming this from Psalm 115. Say it together. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Our tradition at Antioch is to come forward, to take a piece of bread, and to dip it in the juice. Uh, there'll be two lines and gluten-free. It'll be over here on, you, on your right. If you're a baptized believer, we invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper. If you're not a baptized believer, we ask that you would not partake, but instead take up Christ, who has made himself available, who is your true and eternal sustainer and Savior. You would worship him and turn from worshiping dead things and turn to worship the living and true God. There will be pastors in the back and 
others to pray with anyone who has need. Let's go to the Lord together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of song that sings of your heavenly reign and rule and praise. Father, may we be true worshipers of you. May we become like Christ whom we proclaim and worship. May we become like him as we seek his face in community with one another through discipleship. May this vision, the vision of Psalm 115 and the other testimonies of Scripture, be our vision for discipleship. We're not interested in programs. We want to help each other become like Christ on our way to our eternal home with you forever. Father, we pray that this would be true for us. That you would convict our hearts and make it so. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.